0: This is between 1908 and 1927. There was a man named Henry Ford uh, who started the Ford Company, and he produced an automobile that reshaped culture. Now in 1999, uh, the Model T, this is the car that Henry Ford and the Ford Company uh, produced. It was named in 1999, the most influential car of the 20th century selling over 16 million cars, which is eighth on the top 10 list of cars sold all time. Now, the Model T car is not the very first car that was ever invented, but this is the very first car that was actually mass produced uh, at an affordable price for all people to have. Now, this one car, I would say reshaped culture Because it gave millions and millions and millions of people something that they never had before, mobility. With the advent of mobility, people became free from the constraints of their geographical neighborhood, meaning people now had choices that they never had before because they now have mobility. People no longer were just chained to going to whatever the closest store is that they could walk to. People were no longer just chained to, well, this is the one restaurant in town, it's the one place that I can walk to. People were no longer chained to that. Or generally, there would be one church in one town, and you'd go to that church because it was the only church in town that you could actually walk to. If something better now existed, people had the ability to choose what was ultimately best for them. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that Henry Ford ruined culture, but I'm saying he (laughs) reshaped culture uh, because it changed a mindset in people's lives. It went from less communal to more individualistic. There was a shift in culture in the 20s because of a vehicle of less communal and more individualistic. Now, this might be a silly question, but if you were to ask a fish, how's the water? If the fish could actually talk to you, the fish would say back to you, what water? What are you talking about? Because it's all the fish has ever known. Now, I'm pretty confident that everyone in here is 100 years of age or younger. So if you are 100 years or younger, the culture that you and I have been shaped by is a very individualistic culture into the fabric of just who we are, the DNA of our culture that has shaped the world that you and I, how we've grown up and how we think and how we feel and how we interact is less communal and more individualistic. Now, again, I'm thankful that I have a car. And I'm thankful that I have choices that I can go to any Chipotle that I want, whether it is in Woburn or in Bedford or in Medford or in Peabody or in Boston. I'm thankful that I have choices of where I shop and where I eat and where I get to visit and travel to. But the longer that I sit in God's Word, I see a tremendous disconnect between how I have been raised and brought up in this culture to think and actually how the Bible Would want me to think. For example, when I read my Bible, my first thought is, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? How should I apply this text, what I just read, to my life? How does this Bible verse or this chapter, how does it impact me? What changes should I make in my life? Or if I'm listening to a sermon or someone else preach... I first listened to that sermon, that message, through the lens of, well, what does this sermon mean for me? What should I do with what's being said? How should I change or what differences in my life should be made in light of what is just being said? Now, to be clear, these are not bad questions, but they're not first questions. The first questions that the Bible would want us to ask would be questions like, what is this text Or what is this message that's being shared? What does it mean for us? What does this text or this message that's being preached, what should this message, how should it change or impact us? Or how should we apply this Bible verse or this chapter, or how should we apply this text and message to our lives? See, the Bible is directed towards a people, not a person. The Bible is directed towards a people, not just a person. Now, if you're familiar with the Scripture, I understand that there's a few books that are specifically written towards an individual. But when you look at the whole of Scripture, it is geared towards the people of God walking with God, not just individuals trying to walk with God. Last week, we began just an eight-week series entitled Dear Genesis, and we're going to spend the next seven weeks in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, looking at seven different letters from Jesus to seven different churches. And these letters are not first and foremost about our personal walk with God. These letters that were written are not just to help you as an individual walk with God with God, but these letters are about our communal or our corporate walk with God. So as we walk through these letters, I'm praying for me and I'm praying for all of us that there would be a shift in our thinking, that there would be a shift in how we read these letters. I'm ultimately praying that all of us would see and be convinced that your walk with God impacts our walk with God. Maybe someone hasn't told you this before, but how you walk with God impacts how all of us walk with God. Tonight at 8 o'clock, shortly thereafter, the Patriots will kick it off with uh, Kansas City Chiefs, undefeated team. Now, if you're not familiar with football, um, there's 11 people who play on the offense and 11 people who play on the defense. We have a great offense led by Tom Brady, and we've got great offensive weapons. When I say weapons, I mean people, Uh, people who play on our offense. And there's one individual in particular who is just a larger-than-life personality named Rob Gronkowski. Love Rob Gronkowski. But when the offense gets together, they're not running five plays. They're running one play. Imagine if Rob Gronkowski tonight, when he's playing the Chiefs, he's like, I heard what the play is, but you know what? I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to run my own routes. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because that's what I want to do. Rob Gronkowski could single-handedly reshape the offense because one person has decided to do their own thing. If Rob actually did that, how many of us would be either at the game or screaming at our television, Rob, cut it out. Man, what are you doing? Man, get on board with what the whole team is doing. Because his one decision, his one choice, would impact not only the offense, but would begin to impact the defense, would begin to impact the entire organization, impact everyone in the stands, impact millions of people watching. Rob, what are you doing? One person actually can impact everyone. One person can impact everyone. I don't know about you, but I love being around people who walk with God. I love being around people who are just growing and they're learning and they're serving and they're giving and they're praying. I love being around people because when I get around people like that, it impacts me. It influences me. It challenges me. It encourages me. It comforts me. It reminds me. But when I get around someone who's not walking with God, someone who's just walking in a complete different direction, it still impacts me. It influences me, but just not in a good way. And so a question I'd love us all to wrestle with now is, how is your walk with God? And I want to be clear, when I define walk with God, I'm talking about how is your obedience to God? Or how is your life of prayer? Or your life of serving and being a sacrificial servant to others? How is your giving? How is your growing? How is your walk with God impacting our walk with God? Again, your impact is great. Your influence is great. Just how Rob would impact the entire team, you can impact this entire community by either walking with God or not walking anywhere with God. Today, we're looking at one letter, and it's the letter that was written to the church in (laughs) Ephesus. And as way of context, Ephesus along with all of these other churches that we're going to look at over the next 7 weeks is located in Asia Minor. So to put that on today's map, we're looking at modern-day Turkey. And these letters were received towards the end of the 1st century. So to put that even in greater context, we're looking at letters that were written to second-generation churches. So for example, Paul started, planted this church in the city of Ephesus around 50 AD. And we know that in 60-ish A.D., the man who helped plant this church wrote a letter to this church, and we have it, and we know it as the the letter of of Ephesians. So we know that 10 years into this church in the city of Ephesus, they received a letter. And if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, it is largely an encouraging book. I, I know about your love for God, and I know about your love for people. So when they get this letter, 40 years, a generation has come and gone. They have 40 years now of history of just men and women walking with God and stories of God working in their midst. Now church historians would tell us that when a community like Ephesus would get the letters that were sent for them, what they would do is there would be one person that would read these letters. And they wouldn't just read the one letter. They would read all seven letters, and while each of the letters was being read, the men and women that were in that church, in that local community, would stand as God's Word was being read to them. So we've never done this, but I wanted to do something different during this series. So I've invited two people, Bruce and Susan Tatarski, to read these, this one letter, the letter to uh, the church in Ephesus while we all stand. And so if you would, would you stand with me? And I've invited Bruce and Susan to read Revelation. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you tested, you t- tested those who claim to be apostles, and they are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat fruit from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Thanks, Bruce and Susan. Go ahead and be seated. What I love about the introduction to this letter What I love about what Jesus does first is what we learn about Jesus. I love that we learn that Jesus is the one who's actually holding the church firmly in his hand, which means the church is not dependent on a leader. The church is not dependent on leadership and just the staff of the church or whatever the other leadership might be. Jesus is the one who is actually holding the church together, not just a few people. What I love about what we learn about Jesus is Jesus is the one who is actually present with the church. So what makes a church powerful, what makes the church even influential is not a person or a personality of the church, but what makes the church so powerful, so influential is the presence of Jesus. And what I love about what Jesus we learn about Him is Jesus has perfect knowledge of His church. He knows everything about his church, which just means as we follow and listen to Jesus, he's going to lovingly lead us to experience, to encounter all that God actually has for his church. I mean, listen to what Jesus says. This is what I know of this church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate just wickedness that you've tested those who claim to be apostles and false, and they're not. I know that you've persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and you've not grown weary. See, Jesus encourages the church in three different ways. He says, I'm encouraged by your works, I'm encouraged by your purity, and I'm encouraged by your endurance. Jesus tells this church, I know you're working hard. I know you're working very hard. I know you're doing so many good things to help so many people. I'm encouraged by your good deeds, your good works. And then Jesus says, I'm also encouraged that you care deeply about holiness and purity. I know that you care deeply about theological holiness and doctrine that is just pure and consistent with God's character. And I know that you care deeply about moral purity. Now, to put things in greater perspective, Ephesus was the center of worship for the goddess Diana. The temple built in her honor came to be known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was a temple where people would just come to worship, and there was just thousands upon thousands of male and female prostitutes. This was in many ways the Vegas of their day or whatever culture or city or town that when you think of that town, you just think of, my goodness, the immorality is off the charts. This would be the city of Ephesus. So it would not be easy in their culture or their context to say, we're fighting hard for theological and doctrinal purity and personal purity, moral purity. And this was a church that was enduring great hardship. And the reason they were enduring great hardship is because of the name of Christ. They had chosen to associate themselves with Christ, meaning Christians. And in a culture that worshipped many gods and worshipped this goddess Diana, and that worshipped images and statues of the emperor, they said, no, we're not bending our knee to that. They would face incredible persecution. They were maligned and slandered and abused. So, like, for our all outside purposes, doesn't it look like, man, this church is killing it? Man, they are doing so many good things. They're standing up in a culture. They're fighting for holiness and for purity. They're enduring in the face of great persecution from the appearance of things. It would seem like, gosh, this church is absolutely killing it. But what I'm learning afresh is this, we can do all the right things, but still miss the main thing. We can do all of the right things, but still miss the main thing. Imagine if Genesis was to eradicate poverty in Boston and greater Boston. Imagine if Genesis as a community was able to single-handedly get rid of the homeless situation, where we were opening up our homes in such profound ways that homelessness was no longer an issue. And imagine if there was no need for orphanages in Boston or greater Boston because our church was saying, you know what, we're going to take care of foster care. We're going to adopt. There will not be a need for any child to be put in a state-run facility because we are opening our homes. Imagine if all of those things happened. How many of us would say our church is killing it? Homeless poverty poverty, and the entire need for orphanages has been gone. I think all of us would be saying we are absolutely doing an awesome thing as a church. But Jesus reminds the church in Ephesus and he reminds us that we can do all the right things but still miss the main thing. Because he says in verse 4, yet in light of all of the right things, in light of the good things, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now imagine if you were in the crowd that day and you were standing and you heard the first three verses come out. You'd be kind of patting yourself on the back and be like, man, we are awesome. We're doing so many good things and Jesus knows it. But then you get to verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. I want us to be clear, right things are still right things. Jesus encourages them with right things that they were doing, but right things at the neglect of the main thing is still wrong. What happened to this church? How is it possible that they didn't lose Jesus? They didn't lose their first love. How is it possible that they left their first love? It says you forgot or you forsake your first love. Forty years prior, as you read the the letter of Ephesians, largely they are being encouraged for how the first generation was loving Jesus and was loving people. But how is it possible that the second generation of men and women in this community, in this church, left their first love? Now, this is a really important question. I don't want to oversimplify it. But as I've wrestled with this, I just can think of two words. Two words. Head versus heart. Head versus heart. There was a shift in their motivations. There was a shift in their thinking. Obedience out of duty. That's a head thing. I know this is what God wants me to do, so I'll do it. Verse, obedience out of just pure love for God. Not to get something from God because we've already been given everything, but obedience out of God, I just love you. And I want to do what, everything, anything that you would want me to do because I love you that much. Doing for God, head versus pure affection for God. You see, we might have the ability to disconnect the head and the heart, but God doesn't. God does not look at his church and declare, you know what, they are doing so many good things. It's not that big of a deal that their hearts are actually far from me. Now, at this moment, it would be very easy for each of us to begin to wrestle with and wonder this question, have I forsaken my first love? That is a good question, a great question, but it can't be our first question. Because our first question, remember, we're not an individualistic culture, We're a communal culture, so our first question has to be Genesis. Have we forsaken our first love? Have we as a people, as a body, as a community, have we forgotten? Have we left? Have we forsaken our first love? Are we a people that's just doing good things, that's just doing right things, but somewhere along the way we forgot Jesus, the main thing? How do we answer that question of Genesis, have we forsaken our first love? Well, see, this is now where we can ask the second question. And the second question is, have I forsaken my first love? You see, we're one body made up of many parts. The many parts impact the entire body. So the many parts need to now wrestle with the question, have I forgotten, have I forsaken, have I left my first love? And if you want to know how to determine if we have done that, if I have done that, consider how you answer some of these questions. What do I think about most? Like, what do I daydream about? Like, what do I give just my my mind to thinking about? What am I consumed with most on any given day? What do I talk about most? to family, to friends, to neighbors, to coworkers, to classmates? What do I find myself talking about the most? Or what do I get most angry or anxious about? Like, what are the things that just causes me to, to burst in anger or causes me to be overwhelmed with anxiety or just fear or worry? What do I spend my time, my energy? What do I spend my resources? Whether it's financial, what do I give my, my money to? What do I give myself to? See, these are just questions that are good indicators that help reveal a heart condition. See, the reality is there's going to be many people or many things that are going to compete for first place in our hearts. There will be many things that will try to compete for our affections, that will try to compete for our minds, our time, our energy, our resources. And if we don't identify what those things are, then in time, and I mean over time, there will be a drift where in time we will hear the words, you've forsaken your first love. See, it's a good chance just by the fact that you're here. No one woke up this morning and said, you know what? I'm going to forget my first love this morning. None of us woke up today saying, I'm going to forget Jesus as my first love. It's something that happens very slowly and very gradually. We're weeks and then months and then years. And because we know in our mind, I'm still doing good things. I'm still going to church. I'm still reading my Bible. I'm still praying. I'm still giving. I'm still connecting. I'm still serving. But slowly over time, we can just be doing a lot of those things in the flesh. But yet our hearts have just drifted further and further and further away from Jesus. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't end His letter to the church in Ephesus in verse 4. Thankfully, Jesus continues the letter, specifically with an invitation that's coupled with a warning and finishes with a promise. It says in Revelation 2, verse 5 and 7, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent and do things you did at first. That's the invitation. And here's the warning. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And just to be clear, we're not talking about like a lampstand that was bought at Pottery Barn. I'm just going to take that away from you. When Jesus says, I'm removing the lampstand from, the church will close down. You will not exist as this, as a people, because my presence will be not with you. That is the warning that if we don't remember and repent and return, that Jesus will say, this is not my church. You've made it into something less. And then the promise is here when it says to him, or it says in uh, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear. And what the Spirit says to the church is to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, the promise from Jesus to all of us is God is we get God. We get relationship with God both now and in heaven forever. But the invitation I want to focus on, remember, repent, and return. That was the invitation. So I wanted to ask you this morning or this afternoon, if you're a Christian today, you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. You're looking to Jesus alone to be made right with God. You're a Christ follower, a Christian. So this question is for you. Do you remember what you were like when you first met Jesus? Do you remember what you were like when you first met Jesus? Whether this was two weeks ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Do you remember what happened to you when you first discovered that you were loved by God? Do you remember what it was like when you discovered that God loved you and He wanted you to have a relationship with Him? Do you remember what happened to you when you realized that the creator and the sustainer of all things looked at you and said, my affection is on you? Do you remember what happened to you, what you were like when you realized, I mean, I don't have to work to find my way to God? Jesus came to me so I could know God and experience his peace and his unconditional love and his grace and his kindness, experience his faithfulness. Do you remember what it was like, what you were like when you first understood how greatly loved you were by God? I remember for me, I couldn't stop talking about Jesus. I couldn't stop telling other people. I just want you to know you are so loved by God. When I got engaged a little over 21 years ago, uh, to Kyla, do you know how many people that I told that I got engaged? I told everyone. I was the annoying guy. If they had social media 21 years ago, I would have annoyed everyone. I was so excited. I couldn't believe she said yes. I couldn't believe that I was going to get to spend the rest of my life with the woman that I love. I thought that was the craziest thing, and I wanted everyone to know it. I remember what I was like. I couldn't stop telling and talking and telling other people about who God is and His love for them. And when someone told me, Michael I want you to spend time in prayer, and I want you to spend time in the Bible reading and learning so that you can grow and keep learning about who God is and what God is like. I was like, this is incredible. You mean just by spending time in in prayer, I get to talk to God? I get to hear from God? Are you kidding me? That's amazing. I remember not thinking prayer was a burden. Oh, I got to go pray now. I never remember thinking, oh my gosh, I got to read my Bible and get that off my checklist. I remember what it was like when I was so excited to just open my Bible, knowing that I'd learned something new about God. That he was going to challenge me through his word or encourage me or comfort me or lead or guide me. I remember what it was like when someone invited me to serve. Do you know how many times it took for someone to invite me to serve before I said yes once, because I thought it was so crazy that someone would want me to be on the team that they served on. I thought it was so crazy when they explained, Michael, just by doing this, you're going to be able to love people by serving them, that they're going to catch a glimpse of what God is like. I was like, are you kidding me? You want me to do that? I would love to do that. No one had to ask me two or three or four or five or six times. No one ever had to beg me, Michael, would you please serve? So that there would be people who could see what God is like just in the way that you love them. When my pastor was telling me about giving, and he's like, Michael, anything that you are giving is used to help reach people, is help to encourage people, is help to build... I was like, I don't have much, but... Man, if $100 would be used to help reach one person, it's yours. Why would I want to spend hundreds of dollars on just going to movies and eating dinner every single night at Taco Bell back in the day? You could use this limited amount. I would love to give. Do you remember what happened to you when you discovered that God loves you? Because this is what Jesus is saying, remember, and the invitation is return or is to repent. So if you were there and you remember what you were like and you see where you are today, what happened in the in-between? Was it just fear of man? You just somehow, some way got scared of what people were going to say or think of you? That guy talks about Jesus all the time, and you're like, I don't want to be that guy. What happened in the in-between? Because Jesus is saying, whatever that was that took you from where you were to where you are now, you've got to repent of that, because if you don't, your heart will grow colder and harder, and you will think that you are doing good things. You will think that you are doing right things, but yet your heart is far from me. We can divorce head and heart, but Jesus can't. And he just invites us to return, to return back to the place that Jesus has for us, to live in that place of his love, his grace, his joy, his forgiveness, his patience, his kindness, his faithfulness, his provision. How can we do this together? How can we as a community keep the main thing, the main thing? How can we keep Jesus at the center of our lives, of our hearts, so that we don't just become all head doing good things, but yet our hearts are far? We will continue to make everything that we do about Jesus, everything that we say, everything that we sing, everything that we put out, everything that we do, we will keep it about Jesus. Not our name, but his name. We will continue to do anything and everything that we possibly can to help reach our one. And your one is that one person in your life today that you would love to see. They don't know Jesus, but I really want them to know Jesus. We as a church are going to do anything and everything that we can to reach your one. We're not going to give up on that. We're not going to stop talking about that. We are going to continue to invite all people to be part of a group because we believe in groups. You are going to grow in your affection for Jesus, and you're going to grow in your affection for people. Yes, are groups hard? Are they challenging? Do people hurt people? Yes. But we're going to invite you to be part of that so that you can grow in your affection for Jesus. I know when I isolate, when I pull back, my heart grows cold. So we will continue at Odnasium to invite you over and over and over. Be part of a group. It's worth it. Sacrifice the time. It is worth it. And we will continue to invite you to join a team. So that one person through your service towards them, if they would just see Jesus and how Jesus loves them in the way that you would love them, well, guess what? I will not stop asking you and inviting you. And if I have to, beg you, serve so that people would see Jesus. I remember what it was like. I thought it was amazing that I could be used by God to help one person catch a glimpse of what he's like. Well, Michael, you're going to have to come to church a little bit early. I don't care. You're going to have to stay a little bit late. I'm fine with that just for one person. So we're not going to give up on this. We're going to continue to invite people to Jesus. We're going to continue to invite you to be part of people's lives. We will annoy people with how much we care about friendship. Why? Because Jesus cares about friendship. And we'll continue to ask you to serve so that you can have an impact on someone seeing Jesus.